0: Welcome everybody to this uh, report launch. My name is Johan Heimstad uh, from the Norwegian Council for Africa. I'm, uh, so we're one of the co-hosts uh, of this of this ro- launch to, uh, we're glad to be cooperating with Hate Speech International to, uh, to, to launch this uh, report, this brief uh, on Boko Haram. The Norwegian Council for Africa, uh, actually this is the third Public event uh, on Nigeria uh, this week, uh, within a week that Norwegian Council for Africa hosts. Uh, so this is really uh, a week of spotlight on Nigeria, um, and we are passionate about bringing forth uh, the different dimensions to this vast country uh, and how, indeed, it is. Uh, it is uh, just as the continent uh, uh, you can you can tell many stories about country that will all be true but also all very very different this evening we're uh, looking past the headlines and trying to understand uh, boko haram uh, it's a uh, it's an organization or a movement that uh, i think uh, is familiar to many of us but but uh, its origins its history it's uh, its actual impact currently and and its future, uh, I think, to many observers of, Norwegian, of the Norwegian media is very, very unclear. Uh, so we look forward uh, to the debate. Not only do will we have a, a presentation by, by Martin Saber, the report author, uh, but we also have a, a panel following that with Viktor Ratel-Adetola from, uh, from NAI, the Norwegian Africa Institute, with Morten Beos, uh from NUPI. Uh, and, uh the the following uh, debate uh, from from the Norwegian school of theology um, subject to no technical difficulty uh, this this event here will also later be a podcast uh, which means that you are most welcome to post post questions afterwards but please also come forward and, and uh, uh, speak in the microphone uh, so that everyone who's also not here but Wants to listen to the event afterwards, will hear it. Um, I'm going to finish off by uh, saying that the Norwegian Council for Africa is a members-based organization. We do work on disseminating information about uh, the various countries on the continent and putting forward pertinent issues, both to the public uh, and creating a public debate, and not least influencing Norwegian businesses. and Norwegian policymakers. Uh, we rely heavily on the support that we that we get from our members and it's, w- it's going to be it's possible to, to to register as a member afterwards uh, uh, with Ragnhild and not least get with that several publications that we have already produced that uh, among other things look into various issues regarding to Nigeria. Uh, now I will
1: so much. Um, welcome to you all. It's uh, really a pleasure to be able to introduce this uh, event to, uh, tonight. Um, I'm the executive director of Hate Speech Inter- International, which basically is a sort of a combination of uh, an investigative center using reporting techniques, but also to some degree a think tank uh, focusing on extremist groups using uh, violence as a means to achieve their political objectives. HSI was formed in Norway after the terrorist attacks of Andersberg uh, Breivik on the 22nd of July 2011. And since our establishment in 2013, it took a little while to raise the funds. But however, we uh, spent much of our time after that building research and also monitoring extremist groups uh, in Syria and Iraq, Egypt and Yemen. We have worked c- closer together with local reporters in these countries. But we have also started now to expand our scope to include Africa as well, including Libya, countries in the Maghreb region, and as well as uh, uh, focusing on Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram. But we do not uh, only monitor militant jihadist groups. Uh, it would uh, have a poor uh, recollection of the past history if we also didn't include the right-wing extremist scene. So we also have uh, projects, obviously, following neo-Nazi and right-wing extremist groups uh, in Scandinavia, Europe, and North America. We've done research on foreign fighters in Ukraine, where fanatics actually pose a similar threat when they return to their home countries, as the foreign fighters from Syria and Iraq do. Traumatized from living in a war zone and with knowledge about weapons and often how to build uh, and use explosive devices, they represent an equally potent threat as a militant jihazists too. Sometimes we also go beyond the framework of reg- regular research and reporting. Uh, last year, we facilitated a high level defection from a former leader of the openly neo-Nazi Finnish resistance movement. People from this group were the founding fathers, actually, uh, of the vigilante soldiers of Odin movement, as you probably have heard of. The defector was formerly a part of the Nordic leadership of the neo-Nazi movement, and with close ties to the key leaders in most of Europe and North America and also to our Norwegian scene. HSI tries to combine the worlds of investigative reporting and academia, and uh, we're a member of the Global Investigative Journalism Network, uh, not the most prominent member, however, but we're a member. Um, uh, we also have some of the best academics on extremism research in Norway on our advisory board. So our staff consists of both reporters and academics, and we try to be like a bridge between the worlds of reporting and academia, and there's not too many of those. So we try to bring the most knowledgeable people together, uh, and we try to contribute to more insight and a higher capacity in the media on reporting on the challenges to democracies represented by extremist groups. And extremists exploit the liberal freedoms of democracies Uh, in their efforts to undermine the same democracies, which they hate so deeply. And fear can lead to bad choices, as we all know, dangerous assumptions. We are probably living that particular lesson these days. And that is why reports like the one presented here today uh, are so important. Uh, This and other reports like this uh, provide critical knowledge of what is happening on the ground insight explaining why some extremist groups succeed and some don't. Uh, we are al- always looking for new input and new friends to connect with, so feel free to reach out after the briefing and meeting today. Thank you so much to the Norwegian Council for Africa for co-hosting this event together with us. Uh, we're honored to to do this together with you guys. Uh, last not, uh, but not least, let me thank the author of the report, Maren, for uh, going through uh, the efforts of uh, putting together this report and uh, providing us with uh, new insights uh, and new knowledge. So it's really, and also our distinguished guests from uh, Norway and abroad. So yeah, I'm not sure who I should d- defer the word to, but um, okay. Martin. Is Maren is supposed to start, okay. Yes, sure. So with f- without further ado, I now hand the floor to Maren, welcome. Mm-hmm. and slightly I promised uh, Karen to say this. This report is available for the ones that haven't already seen it. Feel free to grab as many examples as you want to. Enjoy.
2: Thank you. Um, I don't like PowerPoints and I don't like microphones, but I should try to to work them all together. Um, I will just briefly say that this report uh, is, well it, it it does reflect my background as a historian. Um, I do a lot of background, uh, and uh, I'm absolutely fascinated by the history of this area. so so y- you will probably see that in the the first couple of slides at least. Um, I'll start with sort of the origins of Boko Haram. It didn't come out of nowhere. it It comes out of a, a area of Nigeria that has, as you can see, um, quite a lot of distinct groups, several religions, languages, and cultures. Um, It is also the crossroads of several caravan routes across the Sahel, uh, something that is significant for sort of the the further exploration here. Um, The majority of the people in northern Nigeria are Sunnis, um, they're actually Sufis, two two traditions, the main ones. They also have smaller groups uh, and they also have a significant Christian population also in the north. Um, During the 19th century, uh, this area, let me show you a map, this area did have several Jihadi movements. Not the kind of jihadi movements that we see today, but a different kind of, of, of sort of jihadi movements that were supposed to purify uh, the traditions in the area. It was also, one could argue, uh, uh, infighting in the elite and, and, and other things that happened, but, but the outcome was that you had two caliphates. Uh, you actually had three, but the last one is further south and not included in this one. These are the historic or sort of the histori- historical roots uh, when Boko Haram today talks about caliphates. They they sort of um, trace it back to, to the Sokoto and the Bono Caliphate in the 19th century. This is a very short history of Nigeria. Um, the medieval Kingdoms and the city-states and the the caliphates—they all ended in 1903 when the British sort of smashed through the walls of Kanu. Nigeria was established in 1913, incorporating both the southern parts, which is mainly Christian, and today the northern parts. Um, Traditionally, both Sharia law, traditional languages, traditional education. all these Sufu traditions, and you had religious leaders. This was all part of the the old um, caliphates and kingdoms that had been there before. And they also became a sort of rallying point for the anti-colonial movement in the North. During the 1960s and 70s, after independence, there was a a re-emergence of sort of religions in politics in, in northern Nigeria, where there was a call for going back to traditional or pre-colonial types of, of um, government, which would include Sharia law and uh, religious leaders. During the 70s, um, as most of you might know, there, there was, uh, a lot in this period, mostly a military dictatorship. and, and and you would have during the dictatorship, radical groups emerging that would sort of be both against the military dictatorship, inside the military dictatorship, and, and, and also more radical than the sort of traditional religious leaders. In the 1980s, you had the first big Islamic, what you can call s- some kind of Islamic revolt or the Maithatina. Um, That was actually a preacher from from Cameroon who preached in Kanu and had thousands of followers and it all ended in a a big sort of bloodbath um, where the leaders were killed and and a lot of other people were, were crushed as well. Oh, sorry. In the 1980s and 1990s, these radical groups uh, continued to sort of thrive under the dictatorship, uh, but sort of hidden, uh, especially in some of the biggest cities in in the north, like Kaduna, Kano, and also Maiduguri. And then you have a return to democracy in Nigeria in 1999, which sort of uh, is the starting point for the new debate on the Islamization of politics in Nigeria and especially a debate on Sharia law that was um, was was sort of voiced all over the North. During the debate on on Sharia law, I think there was about 12 states that finally sort of adopted the Sharia system uh, alongside secular law. You would have Radical groups that, that thought that the Sharia that came into place were not radical enough. Uh, you had groups like the Yanisala and, 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 and a lot of other small groups, both Sunni and Shiite groups, by the way. A- and, and they would all gather um, around preachers or Mulema's teachers, um, like the one, Muhammad Yusuf that came from the Anisala group and then then formed his own group in 2002. He was from Yobe, but but he, which is a state just west of Borno, which is the main state uh, that Boko Haram is is, uh, actually in today. Um, But he gathered his group around Kanuri speakers, people speaking Kanuri, which is the main language in what used to be the Borno Khalifa, as we saw. Um, a lot of the, the, the group was made up of, of very young um, traditional students or religious students, in, in my degree. And they did get some donations and built a mosque. Even Tamiya is a, he was actually a Sufi as well, but he's very popular amongst Salafists. Salafist groups all over the world, they they tend to call their mosques after Ibn Tamiyyah, so also in my degree. Uh, So they built this mosque, uh, came into trouble with the police, um, that over the years, between 2003 and 2009, there were several clashes, but then in 2009, um, the military just moved in on the mosque and the group the mosque arrested Yusuf. He died under suspicious circumstances and a couple of thousand more died as well. Um, That is what they normally refer to as the birth of Boko Haram. We don't know how many Actually, was in in Yusuf's congregation or sect, um, but the support base was probably quite large, and it was both in Cameroon and Nigeria. It was mostly young men, uh, and after the the sort of crushing of of of, of the, the the sect and and the, the raising of their mosque. lot of these young men, they regrouped. We don't know really where they were, but s- somewhere in there, <laughs> not in my degree. Um, but then sort of months, like five or six months after uh, after the, the, the mosque was raised, uh, some of these men, tried to free their companions that were still held by the Nigerian um, security forces. That's the first sort of armed, um, you can say, operations that is, is that we think Boko Haram actually did after 2009. It was prisoners. Prisoner escapes and attacks on security forces. Then at Christmas, they they used the occasion to actually try to ignite the Christian-Muslim conflict that is always underneath the surface in Nigeria um, by attacking churches. Um, That was a fertile ground for that. I think Victor is going to talk a bit more about that. <laughs> they continued. Um, they were still not doing what we see as sort of traditional terrorist kind of operations. They were doing small operations against security forces. They killed local politicians, local religious leaders, people that might have been their allies just a couple of years earlier. In August 2011, they attacked the UN headquarters in Abuja. That's a major shift, both in in tactics and and we're still not sure if it actually was Boko Haram or a splinter group that did it, but it does bear the bearings of everything else than Boko Haram. But they did, um, did Get some attention internationally for the first time for that one, and the next thing they did was actually trying to to like we've been seeing the last sort of more of um, more recently, they they started gaining control over areas, and they actually started with which was the biggest city in the north. Um, I'm not sure about how many. They actually took 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 over, but I think it's a couple of millions just in the city centre. Um, they led siege to the city and they actually held it for four days, uh, chasing the security forces away. So that's actually a major incident, um, not reported very. time time, they, they, they still do sort of, it seems like the bombing in, in Kanu, no, the, the bombing in Abuja was still sort of a, a one-off. Um, they used a truck bomb, they've, they've tried using truck bombs again in Abuja, they're not very good at it. Um, but, but they do start using another tactic. Um, sect members were still in detainment after the 2009 uh, crushing in my degree. Uh, And it seems that in 2013, they started kidnapping people to use as leverage to get their own family members out of internment. Um, Soon they, they sort of discover that taking hostages or, or, or using Kidnapping victims is a very useful way just to get money. It's a very useful way to get recruits as well. Um, So it it sort of uh, quickly becomes the main main activity uh, during 2013, 2014, and it all sort of ends with this school campaign in the beginning of 2014. where they first attacked several boys' schools to, to get recruits, and then this girl's school in Chibok. That's the remnants of the UN building in Abuja. So that was a heavy blast. So this is where we actually start hearing about Boko around outside Nigeria, except for that Abuja bombing. Um, that's when a, a national campaign um, forms around Maiduguri and Shibok to, to free these girls, in, first in Nigeria, and then the national campaign goes international um, and becomes a problem for for the president. <laughs> it seems like the leader of the group at the point, Abu Shekau, did enjoy all the, the attention he got uh, when he kidnapped schoolgirls. So he starts using them as some kind of propaganda tool, uh, both with releasing a series of videos where he seems a bit incoherent, speaking in two languages I don't know, Hausa and Arabic, so I don't, but I- I've heard from those who actually can what he says, and that it, it seems like he's in some kind of, uh, well, he's, he's a bit shocked with all the attention and, 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 and just goes on. Um, at the same time, they were gaining territory in a what we call a more regular traditional guerrilla war. Basically, just going into to, to villages and and overtaking them and, and 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 using their resources on on actually building a sort of a state or a caliphate, as they would like to call it. Um, this is the same time that that ISIL is, is on the the move in in the Middle East. Uh, they realize as well as that they they will get more attention if they use the same language as this is used in, in Iraq and Syria. That's from one of his videos. Shekau, the leader. So this is what happens in in twenty fourteen. They they gain territory. Uh, that's quite a large territory. Is it that's a small part of Nigeria, but it's a, it's a large territory, <laughs> um, and it's fairly thinly populated areas. uh, There are forests and savannas. um, There are borders, which means that uh, you have easy access. If if the security forces in one country goes after you, you just move across to to Chad or Cameroon. Um, So so, so they actually managed to to hold this area for for about five or six or seven months. That means they do have some some capabilities in, in certainly didn't have before. Um, at the same time, you have a Nigerian military that is mostly in disarray and not very effective and uh, are committing atrocities as well, which doesn't help. This is about one year later. Um, it's President Goodluck Jonathan goes on an offensive just months before the election in in, in March 2015, okay. um, and his successor Muhammadu Buhari, which is an ordinary himself, uh, continues that offensive. They also get Chad um, and Cameroon and Niger into a regional force. get huge territorial setbacks during 2015 uh, which ends in, in the president saying that we're victorious, we'll be beating Boko Haram at Christmas 2015 which of course is not true. Uh, at the same time you have a surge in suicide bombings. You have new tactics uh, that comes in. Uh, the bombing campaigns started like mid 2015 or 2014. Uh, it's Sort of went into the background again, and then they surged again as they lost territory. Um, at this time, they they sort of developed their trademark, which is sending uh, very young women or even children uh, into popular areas a- and blowing them up, um, which I, I think it's it's not just as outrageous for us, but I think they they did get some. I think a lot of even Salafist groups think that's just too outrageous for them. <laughs> um, so if they had some allies, they I don't think they have many allies after that. The surge in in, in bombing campaign also affects Cameroon to a large extent and also Chad. Um, as they they continue losing ground. They also lose the, the, kidnapping victims they've had. So the Chibok girls got freed in, in late 2016. Uh, most of them are still missing. And at the moment, we don't really know, uh, how many groups they've sort of splintered into. It, it seems like the, the campaign has split the movement. There's at least two now. Um, One that is allied to uh, ISIL and and one that is still Shekau. Uh, (laughs) Uh, But they lost all their bases in the Zambisa forest. They might still have bases around Lake Chad um, or in the neighboring countries. And they certainly do have to strike back, especially with suicide bombers, as late as yesterday. uh, We had two instances of of bombings with children uh, walking into a mosque and IDP camp.
3: like to, to welcome uh, Victor, um, Adetula, who is um, head of research at, at the Nordic Africa Institute, but has worked extensively in Nigeria at the University of Joss uh, but also Lagos and Ipadan. Uh Would you like to sit or w- you can stand here? Yes.
4: Thank for the opportunity to be here, and I should congratulate you once again for this, uh, you know, wonderful work. Yeah, <laughs> I have uh, maybe some ten minutes to reflect uh, briefly. Uh, if you ask me right away, that what is it that Boko Haram has done? I will possibly say that uh, done to Christian. Muslim relationship in Nigeria, I would say, why uh, it has not uh, helped, uh, and even beyond that, it has not uh, helped or promote good intergroup relations, because people are back to their house, back to your house. Oh, Israel, I, I used to stay in Jos, and uh, you find that uh, the whole Jos is now uh, based on ethno-religious segregation. So you stay where you feel very comfortable among your own people, uh, which is not uh, what it used to be when I first arrived in Jos in 1988. But beyond that, what is the whole thing about uh, Boko Haram and the rest of us? I think uh, that's what is agitating my mind now. I don't know how I'm going to frame that. Uh, just before the Boko Haram the uh, buckle. Nigeria was associated if you like football, if you like uh, corruption, if you but of course the historical thing about oil has always been there. But now that uh, Boko Haram has come on the agenda, you try to google something about Nigeria and you just you cannot count it's all about the story of uh, Boko Haram and that's pushing me towards thinking and reflecting on Boko Haram and the rest of us. What is making Boko Haram the defining, you know, if you like, uh, variable (laughs) when it comes to Nigeria? Why is it that the whole of attention today, when you talk about Nigeria, is about uh, Boko Haram? And I have some few points to raise. Um... The Chibok guys that the author has uh, alluded, the Chibok girl narrative, that okay, and of course uh, the whole lot about human rights issue, girl education, of course that's one point we cannot deny. But again, the religious conflict narrative has always been there. Whenever it comes to talking about Nigeria, it's very very easy to see oh it is about religion. Why it is possible to recognize the fact that there is almost every conflict that has been recorded in Nigeria, there is a religious dimension. But there are other equally important variables that is not uh, covered. And I think uh, that should again agitate our mind. Another narrative that is popular is the terrorism narrative that, oh, it is about terrorism. And of course, the one that is celebrated in the international media is that anti-Western education narrative. Again, all these uh, narratives have their play in developing a framework for analyzing or helping the stakeholders to understand what the issues are. But for me, One aspect that has not received attention is the global context narrative. And I think uh, there is need for more research work and even more media engagements with this particular narrative beyond what we presently have. And of course, for me, preliminarily now, within that framework, we must start thinking about the defeats, or if you like, the retreat of liberalism, neoliberalism itself, and the challenges that that is bringing, the upsurge of nationalism. And that is global, including in Europe, we are experiencing it. The very recent example is the American example that we need to factor again into our framework for understanding the Boko Haram uh, phenomenon. And, of course, the issue of primordial identities, which is spread all over. And uh, if you put all this together, and what I have preliminarily identified as uh, the deficiency in our narrative, unfortunately, it has informed the way we have responded to the Boko Haram issue. Both at the official government level in Nigeria and even globally including the friends of Nigeria. But let us start with the Nigerian state itself. Initially, the official position was, oh, Boko Haram is a local problem. Let every other person, every other actors stay out. Nigeria is able to handle it. It's a local issue. But if we Inject in the global context, you know that Boko Haram, even at the level of origin, has never been a Nigeria issue. It cut across because uh, even if you go back like uh, it's shown in the the map, the Caliphate, the Bono Caliphate, the Sokoto Caliphate, historically, the Muslim in Bono Caliphate never agree with the Muslim in the Sokoto Caliphate, as the interpretation of the practice of Islam, and which helps us to realize that that belt itself presents itself as a very conducive environment for a radicalized uh, 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 practice of Islam, and uh, when uh, the lot of uh, Izala, Muhammad. Start coming up and think about new religious movement around. The question for me as a researcher, why that region? Why did it start first at that place? I think these are issues we need to probe uh, further. But the point I'm trying to make here is that at the level of the state's response to the Boko Haram, initially, Nigeria localized that. And also developed a strategy that was treating it as a local problem. And for me, it delayed um, the, the 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 collective uh, approach that later came in maybe after uh, tw- uh, 2013. Now, for the international, since the owner of the problem, so to speak, Nigeria said it was national it was local. Of course, it's logical to also treat it as a local. So rather than push this matter up to the United Nations from the early stage of it and receive global attention, it was treated essentially as a Nigerian problem. Uh, I find that uh, not uh, uh, quite helpful for Nigeria. And of course, some of the other narratives that presented as an anti-Western education struggle did not also help a broader and deeper understanding of the issues along with the dynamics that was pushing it. Because uh, for some of us that left home to visit elsewhere, you hear about oh, Boko Haram is against Western education. And I said, look, it's more than that. <laughs> it's not about Western education. It's a, the symbol that Western education represents. Because if you look down, it's not so much about Western education, but that the people that were oppressing us are using this Western education to keep us out of social mobility. Simple. And unless we realize uh, the sociology and the psychology of the thinking of the key actors on this movement, it may be very difficult for us. Uh, I know I have very little time. Now, I agree with uh, the author with respect to the retreats uh, of Boko Haram that came uh, when, uh, Buh- just as President Jonathan was leaving and uh, Buhari was uh, coming in. Uh, but I think it goes beyond uh, the fact that uh, Buhari. Was not um, Bukhari is northern or is uh, not, not not in the report. This is coming from elsewhere. I mean, I see that regularly that uh, discuss about Nigeria political crisis and it's about oh north south dichotomy, Muslim north southern <laughs> Christian, and that conceal a lot of uh, issues that should have actually provided a better understanding of it. I think it's not about that. What happened as Jonathan was, you know, the government of Ghana was running up was a a kind of deliberate move. Now to go global and move away radically from the initial response of, oh, this is Nigeria problem. Now the region said, okay, because at that point you now see the region, the regional initiatives coming in either within the framework of ECOWAS or the Lake Chad Basin, And that actually made it possible, to some extent, to curtail uh, uh, Boko Haram. And of course, like the author said, the division within the Boko Haram movement itself has really helped issue. And uh, of course, and this is my position, Boko Haram cannot be said to have developed any serious strategy. And i have shared this elsewhere that uh, Boko Haram don't even have a strategy in the real sense of it. Uh, but again, for a, a movement like that, that is operating, and you have uh, a Nigerian military that has its own challenges. Yeah, it makes uh, a movement that has no strategy, uh, to look as if it has an organized strategy. Boko Haram uh, don't have a strategy Compare with other, so to speak, terrorist group. And that is why, to me, Boko Haram is still an orphan. <laughs> that none of the established popular uh, terrorist organization will want to identify with or even uh, Will I say synchronize their strategy, and yeah, that is uh, contestable anyway. And uh, where are we today in Nigeria? I started by saying that uh, Boko Haram uh, has a further divide Nigeria along the those primordial lines. No doubt about that, I agree. And of course, the conflict is not limited to northeast. You have the Avengers in the Niger Delta. You have the Biafran agitators, and of course, you still have increased criminality around the Southwest. So for me, we're talking about still having socioeconomic condition that need to be addressed. And unless this is addressed significantly, and with marked commitments, uh, we have not seen the end of this kind of uprising. Thank you.
3: started off with um, the Boko Haram organization and the history, then we got it placed uh, in a broader Nigerian context, and now we will broaden it again to the regional context. And uh, I will just give the floor to Martin. Thank you. um
5: Thank you, and uh, thanks. T- <coughs> sorry, and uh, thanks to the organisers and to the previous speakers. Um, what I will try to do uh, very quickly is to say something along about how does the Boko Haram rebellion fit into this larger picture of um, unrest in the Sahel, but also down in the Lake Shad basin. And for me, I mean, I just recently returned from Mali and. Uh, what I see is a, is a situation in which, in fact, larger parts of this region, of both the Chad uh, Basin but also the whole Sahel, is on the border of unravelling. And why is that the case? Well, I mean, it's the case of Salafi rebels, yes, but uh, this is also very much a livelihood crisis and there are also, I mean, other underlying factors than religion here. So, I mean, when I Talk to some of these people who are on the fringes of some of these the various movements. I mean, yes, I mean, there is a hard core here that are die hard radicalized. I mean, people like Mukhtar Bel Mukhtar, Iyad Aghali, and others of these leaders, they are clearly people with a radical mindset. When I mean, they are believers in a Salafi ideology, clearly. But that is not necessarily the case of the rank and file uh, involved in all of this. I mean, this is also very much a livelihood crisis that, this, um, that we are witnessing in this region. So that's why when I talk about the style, I try to, try to talk about sort of the relationship between crime, coping, and resistance. And there are sort of various facets of this that keeps this alive. And just to t- uh, before I proceed, just to take one brief example. This is a guy that I met uh some time ago in Bamako, I uh, met him through a local Marabu that I know and that he trusted. He had been uh, fighting in um, in uh, northern Mali, not in Timbuktu, which is on this map, but on the if you sort of if you look at where the B is more or less in Timbuktu, that's where the river of Niger bends, and there you find a city called Gao that was controlled by. Um, um Salafi groups for quite some time in 2012 to 13, And this was a guy. I mean, he was already, uh, initially from Senegal. He was um, His plan was to reach Europe. But then he thought he had planned it well, but he hadn't. And he had running out of money. He was left um, trying to l- survive day to from day to day in Gao. Uh, and then suddenly somebody came around and said, why don't you join us? We'll pay you between, the, you'll get between 250 to $500 per month. Wave the black flag, wear the ka, use the ka- Kalishnikov and shout Allahu Akbar. And as he saw it, why not? Why not? There is so little else to do. So, le- so few other possibilities. So he stayed with uh, them with for two years. And when I met him, he was on, uh, making his way back to Senegal. Because he had saved up so much money you now that uh, he wasn't that interested in Europe anymore. He, he wanted to go back, back to Senegal because he could do two things with the money he had saved up. He could pay off the debts that he had taken up in order to try to reach Europe. Uh, but secondly, he also had enough money, so he thought he could inv- invest in a garage. Was, he a ra- was this a radical mindset? No to something else. This was driven by other factors. And we need to understand how this is driven by a lot of other factors. Because this is what is happening all across this region now, and also into the Central African Republic and into Nigeria. This is the what we see here, what's behind these various Salafi movements, and at least their growth is the combination of states that that are no longer part of people's solutions, but have been m- part of, very much part of the problem. States that have become more or less irrelevant for people's daily struggle to to make it through to another day. States who are now seen as a problem and not as a solution, because if you t- if you try to take your, your problems to a local state institution, a local government, what they're saying in Mali is that I mean. Th- Government is not the solution. It's fertilizing these conflicts instead of trying to solving them. States that are uh, that are so weak that they become irrelevant. International responses that are completely haphazard and have been underfunded for decades. And third is the effect of climate change in this region. I mean, you could talk a lot about that also when it comes to Bukharam. I believe that at least part of the background from the for, for the Bukharam uh, conflict lies in the fact that. Lake Lakshad is not what it used to be. The fish market uh, in Maiduguru is almost non-existent. There is still fish there, but it used to be one of the largest markets for freshwater fish in Africa. That is not the case anymore. The area is getting drier. When things get drier, and here you have pastoralists and agriculturalists, well, if there is no state to regulate this, they get into conflict with each other because the old ways of dealing with water-sharing, land-sharing, doesn't work anymore. And into this void comes the Salafi movements. And they establish some sort of order, not necessarily Bukwaram. They have been more (laughs) disorderly in that regard. That said, I do believe that the situation for part of the uh, population in northern Nigeria is worse now than it used to be. And it's worse now because it has moved from a war of relatively fixed frontiers in 2014 and 2015 into a war of almost no frontiers right now. And as lo- and the Nigerian army is closing markets and Bukharam is blowing up markets, which means that the local way of distributing food is also becoming dysfunctional. So, I mean, there is much more to this than religion really we need, but that said, We also need to understand the religious aspects of this conflict and why religion and particularly sort of this version of Salafism is seen by some groups as a better governance strategy, as a better tool for governance than anything else they have seen. Because that is what we are now seeing in, uh, for in, uh, for example, central Mali. So what does this mean in short? I don't have very much time, but... If you look at the situation of the of the Islamic insurgents in this part of the region, I know I'm not talking about um, Nigeria per se, but if you go to, to, to Mali, well, they lost the territorial control that they had. But they are far from beaten. Recent attacks in Bamako and elsewhere in Mali, including Mopti and Gurm, and in the Sahel West Africa, region at large shows this. They are far from beaten. Bel Mukhtar is still out there. Even if the French and the US uh, Secret Service sort of report him dead every second month, I mean, he's still alive. So apart from Abu Said, I mean, the whole leadership here is more or less still intact. The majority of the fighters have also escaped, some still in northern Mali, either hiding in the desert or sought refuge among the local population. The rest is spread out all over, from uh, the Sahel, Niger, Mauritania, southern part of Libya, Tunisia, some may even be in uh, Nigeria. Because these are areas where it's easy to hide, but also lots of possibilities for the creation of new alliances and attaching themselves to pre-existing conflicts, and these groups have now over th- almost over decades developed a proven ability to do this. They have become immensely good at appropriating local conflicts in order to achieve a level of uh, integration. When I mean you have to stop with this nonsense about talking about this as something alien, some almost this kind of Nazis from space argument, something that has just fallen down there. They have bec- become integrated because Neither the states nor the international responses of development and humanitarian aid has worked at all for local people. And a certain order, even if it's a violent Salafi order, is better than no order. So we should not underestimate the strategies of integration based on their ability to appropriate uh, local grievances. They are well adapted to local context trade and distribution, and they have the means to back up their strategies of local integration. And they are using these strategies no elsewhere in the Sahel region, not only in northern Mali. Uh, so for me, what this means is that when I look at a movement like AKIM, and I think what I know say about AKIM could also be said uh, very much the same about the – Front Liberation uh, Masina, which is now very active in uh, in uh, the central region of Mali, but also similar movements elsewhere, is that they have become a brand name for pious traders and Islamic warriors in many ways. And they are using history. I mean, Bukharama is also an I- interesting example of the how Bukharama has tried to appropriate history and appropriate the history of the caliphates. They are manipulating it clearly, but I mean... Again, for something it works and it uh, seems credible. So what we are talking about here is well-tuned local integration strategies based on more than a decade's experience of appropriating local grievances through, through trade. I mean, to be honest, trader works in a place where honesty by people of uh, authority is not something people are used to experiencing. It's a story that I repeatedly was told in two, twelve, and two turn that. When the Salafists took control of Northern Mali, they paid good prices for the local products that they bought. Something that people were not used to. Here come men with arms and they, and they ask to buy a goat. And they don't take the goat. They, they buy the goat and in fact they, they pay an okay price for it. Something that was completely unheard. I mean the Malian army never did anything like that. They just took the goat. This matters to people. And we need to understand this. Distribution. I mean, some of these groups, they distribute money. They distribute me- the medicine. They give people airtime on telephones. Use local marabouts. They establish also some sort of protection and order. But they also use force, of course. These are violent actors. And we should not also and underestimate that, particularly in the case of Mali, local people realize what is going on. They understand that this is an asymmetrical warfare war that they have been caught up in the Salafists don't need to win they just need to hang in there one day longer than Operation Berkan the French anti-terrorist operation and the UN then the UN eventually will leave and they will have to stay there with the Salafists so you don't rat on them basically so in some, let me just end by this because I mean, this is also a question that has often come up. This about the Dash or uh, ISIL or IS or whatever we call them. I prefer to use the to use the name Dash in West Africa and the Sahel. I mean, much ado has been made about this, but yes, Dash is a source of inf- inspiration for some, just as Al Qaeda was in the past. But we should not put too much emphasis on this. There is not one great game plan here. There is no great design. Most of these groups operate relatively independently of each other. But they do communicate support and allegiance to each other on the web. But that is, for me, much more of a branding strategy than that we can talk about that these different groups are becoming branches of each other. We need to separate when we want to understand the rhetoric of these kind of group, what is for purely brand purposes and what is actually branching strategy. And what we are seeing so far in West Africa and the Sahel is, to me, a brand strategy. They are building a brand and they are building their own brand by branding each other, basically. Well-known marketing strategy from any commercial businesses. And this is what they are doing. AKIM is first and foremost an Algerian group, and it's this dimension that partly facilitated the emergence of uh, Mudrao, the movement for Jihad in West Africa, and the latter uh, al murabitun which is the group of uh, Belmokhtar. There may have been some sporadic contacts between Boko and Mudrao when the latter controlled Gao, but to me, I mean, whatever exists still of Boko external support network, it is mainly elsewhere. It is towards Shad and Cameroon. That said, there are elements among the Salafis uh, insurgents that are drifting towards uh, ISIS. We have always seen this in the case of Algeria. But in my point of view, as long as influential jihadists such as Belmokhtar remains alive and loyal to the old Al-Qaeda establishment, ISIS room for maneuvering here is somewhat limited. And if you just allow me one minute more, is that okay, Gina? Yes, yeah. <laughs> because I would like to leave us with this, to try to lift this a little bit. And this is based on a framework from for a forthcoming book that will be published later this year called uh, "Africa: Africa's Insurgents, the Evolving Landscape. Because I do believe that we can talk now about a new evolving landscape of insurgencies in West Africa and the Sahel. Why is that the case? It's the case because those that we know are talking about, like Boko Haram or these other movements in Nigeria, or some of these that I'm talking about now, Akim, uh, Almorobitan, and so on, they do not fit with established categories of insurgencies. They're not about national liberation. They're not about separatism. Revolution? No. Well, some sort of revolution, but not revolution as we used to think about it. They're not pure warlordism either. Because the new ones, such as Akim, they tend to be local and global at the same time. They are rooted in local cleavages and local struggles, but they are using a global brand name to uh, to talk to the world. So branding has become an integral part of the strategy. They are religious fundamentalists, but they are also extremely pragmatic at times, these groups, and they are very good at appropriating local grievances. They operate in uh, environments of little state control and state legitimacy where local livelihoods are under immense pressure due to a combination of increased climatic variability and the inability of states to uh, react to this. And here is to me something that is an immense difference from the kind of movements that I used to study in the late 90s and early 2000s when I worked in the Manu River Basin. These groups are not trying to capture the state or to break away from the state, they challenge the very notion of the modern state and the modern state system, which mean which leaves us with no or a very narrow margin for a negotiated settlement. Remember, a group like the RUF, the Revolutionary United Front of Sierra Leone, terribly demonized in international media, branded as crazy thugs who was cutting off arms of men and women, raping, all the, all the worst thing you can think about, we could still invite them into internationally sponsored negotiations. Why was that the case? It was the case because they were not trying to, they didn't challenge the very notion of the modern state. So this means that, unfortunately, due to the much larger crisis in the Sahel and the Lakshad Basin, we have not come to see the end of this. Unfortunately, this is something that we will have to struggle with for quite some time. And we need to sort of work towards, we we as researchers need to become better at understanding this. But we also need to raise the agenda of the humanitarian crisis of the Lakshad Basin and the Sahel much more forcefully than we have been able to do in the past. And to me, the best way of doing that is basically to tell Europe, Norwegians, that it's in our own best interest of being uh, interested in this area. Because if the whole Sahel unravels, well, it will be left to Europe to try to deal with it. Because the U.S. has completely disengaged from this region. And that did not start with the current President Trump. It started a long time ago under Obama. Thank you. (laughs) And sorry for taking up more space than I should. But you invited me, so (laughs) you know what you get.
3: No, thank you very much, uh, Morten. Um, We have not as much time as we had planned. We will um, end uh, this session today five or ten uh, minutes past um, half eight. So I would just like to invite uh, the three speakers to come and, and, and sit here it means we have half an hour So, uh, and as was said in the beginning if you have questions you also have to come up here and speak at the microphone because it's um, being recorded I will let you um, respond uh uh, to to your presentations. But first, I, I had a question. Um, I remember in the early days of, of Boko Haram, and um, uh, there were a lot of discussion, which none of you have mentioned today, but there was a lot of discussion about whether this group uh, had any support among local people regular people, but there was also a lot of discussion and speculation about what kind of big men supported these groups. But that aspect uh, does not um, occur in the conversation so much as it did before. Uh, Is it because the early discussion was wrong, or has the group changed so much that it has basically alienated um, everyone? Yes. Yes.
2: Mm. Uh, the group turned against the establishment very clearly uh, and and also killed off some of them that that might have been their allies.
4: Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, like you said, just to footnote that, if you look at the level of poverty uh, at the local level, I'm not always comfortable using local, (laughs) I'm not very comfortable. Poverty at that level, yeah, and deprivation, and that is not uh, peculiar to <laughs> the Nigerian insurgent group. Anywhere that you have that kind of thing, definitely you see what uh, we may uh, hastily conclude that is support. But don't forget that we're talking about a group that. so-called supporters we are seeing are people that actually force into that. That's one level. The second level is the level of uh, uh, do they have some of the political or the politician providing some support to date. No clear evidence. that, look, I know those who are behind this. Some of them are even in my government, of course, anybody hearing that will imagine that, oh, politicians are providing support. But it hasn't come out clearly for us to see. Even mm-hmm. again, we cannot also deny on the basis of scientific reasoning that support is not coming from religious groups are getting support from outside the country. So we cannot deny that there is no support. Last point on that, if this social movement is operating using gorilla tactics, and we know that gorilla tends to maintain closer to the community. So again, you can see that this is it. And I, I want to lean to the point uh, made, uh, with respect to money that when Dragging in the concept of a failed state, the tendency is to see these so-called warlords as alternative to provision of social welfare. And again, they are very, they, they are they are smart guys, and they know the need of the people, and they.
5: saying uh, I mean I mean the real tragedy uh, for me around uh, with with the whole uh, Bukharam situation and rebellion is that I mean their initial sort of social reading of the situation in Borno State was not necessarily wrong I mean their their criticism of the corruption of both civic leaders, but also religious leaders, is spot on. The problem was how they decided to try to go about changing this. So, I mean, initially, I mean, as both of them alluded to, there, there, wa, there were some support for the movement, um, particularly for Yusuf. And, I mean, people should read what Yusuf has been writing. He has published a book. Not, uh, I mean, it's a theology that I personally strongly disagree with, but it's a coherent book that he has written. I mean, it d- this movement was not created by a madman. <laughs> it wasn't created by a madman. I mean, movements that tend to last are, are really created by madmen. We don't need to like them, but we ha- we have to analyze it critically from a distance. Distance, what it actually is, and. It's important to separate, I mean sort of periodically, the evolution of Bukharam like Maren uh, did. Uh, it's also important to sort of separate between sort of the, the social criticism uh, embodied in the movement and the actual violent tactics that they make use of. People may sort of nod their head to some of the social criticism in it, while they still may or be both afraid of them or uh, ambiguously against the means that they are using necessarily be conflated totally and my third point with regard to bukoram and networks is that yes I mean I've also seen all this about where they supported by Nigerian big men and these kind of things and you're right Victor I mean th- we have n- we have not seen any conclusive mm-hmm. evidence what we can what what we do know is that buwararam or the support structures around buhararam are part of larger trade networks that's quite obvious, because uh, there has been a lot of loot going out of uh, northern Nigeria and, for example, over the border to both Shad and Cameroon. And they have acted uh, in collaboration with more bandit groups, from, uh, particularly from Shad. And of course, this is convenient for, b- for both groups. I mean, seen from a Boko perspective, I mean, they, bec- they, they look stronger than they actually are. Seen from a bandit perspective, I mean, what's better? To Places in the Sahel where bandit groups um, know, happily wave the, the the Salafi flag and shout Al Wakbar if they can uh, uh, use that as a disguise. So that's also a part of it. Sort of, uh, what sort of, a little bit the of question is often, what's the real Bukaram here? Or will the real Abu Bakr please stand up? <laughs> <laughs> if, he's uh, if he's alive.
3: <laughs> <laughs> There's a uh can raise your hand and let me know if you have questions. I will uh, try and look uh, to them, to the room as well. There are several conflicts in Nigeria. And the one that is very precarious now is the one in South Kaduna between uh, rural banditry, somebody call it, uh, herdsmen, local herdsmen, Fulani um, uh, uh, nomadic people. Mm. How does this uh, conflict, how does it relate to Boko Haram, is it a completely different thing? Uh, uh, or, or are there connections? Maybe Victor, if yes. you can.
4: Uh, that's what you're talking about. So Uh, And let us look at the context whereby in the imagination and the psychic of the people. The moment there is an attack, the first thing is, this is Boko Haram. That label is very convenient (laughs) uh, to, to be used, especially uh, where Boko Haram Certain population and grew from Northern Nigeria and Islam, and you're talking about South, Kaduna, which is the indigenous, uh, and over the years there have been indigenous indigenous settler question in that place, so it has played up. But for me, uh, the issue of uh, environmental change mm. has a role to play, and unfortunately, people that have been have not really played that up, either uh, fearfully (laughs) or because of the evidence is not coming out uh, so concretely as to use immediately. So I think it's a combination of factors. The South Cardinal thing, uh, the conflict that happened in the recent time, Boko Haram of some of the backlogs and uh, baggages coming from the previous uh, settler, uh, issue. Muslim-Christian narrative is so Mm -hmm. easy to run uh, under and it's not making it easy for -hmm. security agency and even in terms of official
5: else that we are seeing now increasingly over the whole region, these okay. types of conflicts. And yeah. the danger is, of course, that what will happen to them is that they will uh, be appropriated by such groups. I'm not uncertain whether Boko Haram has the capacity to do this, but if you, if you again sort of turn our, uh, our eye to, uh, to Mali and Mali's central okay. region, what you are seeing there is the creation for the first, för fulani salafist. someone to help protect their interest because what we are talking about here is the very basic interest of survival that is seen as threatened because I mean without a, a, a farmer without access to his land he's a dying farmer a herdsman without access to water for his herds during the dry season well he's a dead As a basic survival right that is threatened, well, they are looking wherever there is for some support, for something to help protect what they feel that they have a, a right to. And if there had been a state that had worked, they would have. Uh, many of these would have preferred the state. There isn't any state that worked. And this is what Iyad Agarly dead by in Mali, is now up in flames, and it's unraveling under the eyes of the UN, basically, and the UN doesn't know what to, how, how to deal with. So that's hmm. the danger of hmm. this.
3: Thank you. Uh, we have uh, one question. Please come up, Camilla. Uh,
6: thank you all for very interesting uh, interventions. I'm. Uh, I don't even know how to start this because I'm. Kind of can't get this to because your concepts of insisting on saying this is we should think of this in global perspectives and you mentioned specifically neoliberalism which may need some fleshing out but the other thing you said is the this process of nationalism and increased uh, primordial identities as defining for politics uh, and I kind of can't make that fit with uh, Morton's comments on, on these new ways of relating to the state, of challenging the notions of the state, not capturing it, not segregating fr- from it. How... D- is it possible to somehow get those two statements together? Can you help me? So I guess it's... How, how would you comment on each other on, on that? <laughs> <laughs>
4: work myself, but some some elements of it, and I with the the defeat of neoliberalism. And uh, if you look at some of these countries, and which, uh, of, of course, which we, 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 we all talk about the failed states, but well we've not talked about uh, failed liberal democracy. Yeah. Uh, that democracy, democratic governance that is reduced mm-hmm. to election, periodic election. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all these states, where conflict has scaled out, and I think uh, we can lean on the work of Paul Collier on votes and democracy on this, and say that, look, uh, liberal democracy has not produced good governance in these places as to address the upsurge of conflict. For me, I think it's something that we can play out. And again, if you look at the so-called economic reform in some of these countries, including Nigeria, Despite the fact that, okay, the assumption that, okay, uh, liberal democracy will support economic reform and uh, governance will be addressed, we still talk about dividend of democracy not spread to this grassroots, this target group for recruitment into the insurgent uh, movement. So part of this uh, is there, and I think uh, there is need uh, to really, really look at that. And for me, because I I I, sp- I I I said it, and we all see that uh, nationalism is on the on the rise. Nothing has challenged Huntington's Clash of civilization, Not even in Europe, where we have uh, uh, where maybe we can spare the Scandinavian country. But even <laughs> within, even within, we see that a new revived nationalism, and it's so fashionable now. To Death of internationalism, or the demise of it, which is not adding value even to the response of the international institutions.
3: Yes, yeah, that was a <laughs> dark yeah, no. Yes, go ahead.
5: No, I mean I, I don't see any okay. sort of. I, I think we are coming at this from a slightly different. Uh, crisis of modernity which is very much part of what you talk mm-hmm. about it i mean sort of democracy that has been di- de- re- been reduced to sort of um, an uh, electoral game that uh, takes place every fourth year or every fifth year uh, and in the meantime i mean the, the population are a complete uh, disposables uh, i mean when i talk uh, during my last visit to mali just a week ago i, uh, I came back i mean it's um, very much this looming in the background of so many people I talked to is this fear, this sentiment of a crisis of modernity, that modernity as it promised, uh, and what it promised has not delivered at all. And democracy is seen as part of this. Because I mean, seen from a Malian perspective, I mean, what has democracy given them? It's given them a very extremely weak state. What has de- decentralization given them? An even weaker state. They have tried Circle from sort of semi-authoritarian uh, democracy, military dictatorship in the name of uh, national development, flirtation with uh, socialism, uh, back to multi multi-partism, <laughs> and the only thing that happens is that the state gets weaker and weaker. fewer people get uh, get uh, get jobs. So I mean that some people are saying, well, modernity please stop. I mean you, you are not <laughs> delivering. But it's with a sense of enormous frustration and sadness that people are seeing that modernity as as it promised has not delivered on this. And this leads to both an identity crisis but also to some sort of uh, existentialistic crisis and this kind of social angst that helps drive some of these issues that we see in Nigeria which we see in the UK and which we also see here and part to me I mean part of why is that turning into a more sort of nationalist maybe talk about right wing populism well I mean it's because the left has failed these people basically this is not sort of due to the strength of the argument
3: move on. Uh, just a, um, a different set of c- questions about the media. Um, I, I did a very informal uh, research a couple of years ago about reporting about Nigeria and the BBC uh, and what kind of stories kind of uh, co- the headlines. For instance, when it comes to conflict, the issues of, of the, um, the, the settlers and the nomads, it doesn't appear. But Boko Haram is kind of the currency. That's Something that is written a lot about. And I was wondering, Maren, how, um, what are the challenging uh, challenges in reporting about Boko Haram and Nigeria as you see it?
2: so much uh, because there's so many other problems closer to them easier to do uh, and it doesn't involve the same security threat I think Mm. overall
3: a little bit now because we have two questions uh, in the back uh, Bundes and here in the front Cecilia uh, could you first Bundes and then Cecilia if you just raise your questions uh. mm-hmm. yeah you have to come up I forgot <sighs> and we will try and end in six minutes so you
7: but also the issue that uh, Martin raised and the humanitarian situation in the region. And um, there is a sh- uh, an international pledging conference coming up for Nigeria and, and the Lake Chad region. And I was just wondering um, the, the role of Nigeria as a tiger in Africa versus kind of being a failed state that now needs the international community's assistance solve their local problems. Um, if you could kind of comment on what do you think, uh, how how will kind of Nigeria tackle the role of, of being the host of an international donor conference for itself? And also I would l- just like you to know that there is a um, civil society uh, meeting the day before the um, donor conference on the 23rd of February and I will share the information with the Norwegian Council of Africa so that they can spread.
8: that you've raised. Um, I have too many questions. I'm just going to ask the one. Um, you were talking about the Izala, and what I find really interesting is that here in the Western media especially, but also in some of the Nigerian media, the Izala is sort of represented as a um, really problematic, radical uh, group where lots of the Boko Haram supporters have often started off from. Um, but when I've done interviews myself with Izala preachers and malams, they've often re- presented Izala to me as a sort of um, uh, as a place where people can get knowledge about Islam, as the sort of uh, uh, solution to the problem of local malams who just will tell anyone anything to uh, to get support. Do you, can you comment on that? Do you have any thoughts?
3: Then maybe if you Victor can think about okay. how how Nigeria will respond to the humanitarian industry.
2: <laughs> if that's
3: Salafism is yeah, huge in Nigeria, even in a very tiny minority is, 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 is jihadi, yeah. Salafi, yeah. And yeah. yes. The o-
4: o- one note on Izala. I, mm. I live in just where you have the headquarters of Izala, Radical, mm. radical doubt about that, Compare with GNI and others. Ah. because they say, they presented the as establishment, mm. you know, and they are. The GNI and is the
3: umbrella organization. Umbrella
4: one thing we have to put in context is that some of these religious movements, including Christian religious movements, gained popularity in the eighties with the deepening economic crisis. And religion became the hope for the hopeless. Mm. So I think that's need to put that. The question about uh, humanitarian and uh, Nigerian tiger, of course, they just demonstrated the gratitude in 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 uh, Gambia. Um, this is what I've said. development in place and put food on the table under good leadership. And it will interest some of us that in the 70s, Nigeria was ready to donate and put money in the EDF (laughs) to be used as development assistance under the EEC program of assistance for other countries. And today, What gets into Nigeria as development assistance, uh, as part of its gross domestic product, is less than 3%. And that's why it's easy to embezzle the money. (laughs) Because it doesn't enter the national accounts. So if you put these two together, you would think, oh, Nigeria doesn't need any humanitarian assistance. But that is not the end of the argument. If you go to this place and you see people, and some of you, you travel Abuja, Lagos, and possibly Jos. If you go to where the Nigerians are living, you will not see development. And for this proper of people, assistance is needed. So if we look at that, not to talk about what turn zones, where the infrastructure international friends and actors to see this, but the question that must be answered is that should they channel this through the state structures or look for alternative means that will guarantee that the the, the ones that actually need this will get it. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Professor Victor is uh, heading back to Sweden this yes. evening. Okay. Uh, we will allow a, a wise word from Morten, since we didn't get a <laughs> to end. A oh, maybe a song? No, not a song. <laughs> yeah, not
5: but I do believe that The, the spread of radicalism in this part of the world and I mean salafism is spread salafism is increasing in Africa but that's always also pentecostalism pentacom- by the way so um, but we also have to in peaceful ways and that needs to be respected. Which also to me suggests that this idea about sort of the the radical as some sort of monolithic entity is completely wrong. We need to start to, to understand being radical more as a situational pose that is used for certain purposes under certain situations. Meaning that we have to stop this nonsense of approach across the board towards de and For me, even the term de-radicalization mm-hmm. is problematic because it sort of it brings uh, back ideas about how sort of the Soviet Union and all the states try to deal oh. with the dissidents. Uh, that this is dissident thought that it's a sort of some sort of a